Welcome back to the 18 Opportunities Podcast. So happy to be here with you again and explore the story and character of golf. Golf is 18 little games, 18 fresh starts, 18 opportunities to shake off the failures of the past and embrace the good fortune of the present. Let's talk a little bit more about the golf ball. Yeah, where do you want to start? So I'm going to start here talking about John Lowe, where he is talking in this book. Remember, this book was sort of a pivotal book in terms of what golf courses should be about. And he also spoke about just generally how you play the game and the types of clubs you're using. And I'm going to be referring to him when we talk, as we just had a really great conversation about the golf clubs, we're going to come back to that in a little bit more depth because there's some cool historical subjects around that. As you recall, the golf started with a wooden ball. The next big jump was the feathery ball, which came around 1600. The next big jump was the gutta percha ball, or as what John Lowe would note, would talk about is the gutty. So that was from the shavings of rubber that was found in the Vishnu statue Amazon gift back box of 1848. And that was played for about 50 years. Then Spalding came on the scene. Their first contract was to make gutty balls with Harry Varden as the Varden flyer. Golf is starting to really take off. And Spalding is going to get in the game and they're going to make gutties as well. The Haskell ball is invented in America with the cooperation of the Goodrich Tire Company. It was nicknamed the Bouncing Billy because it was Bill Haskell was his name. And this was the first rubber ball and India rubber specifically. And this ball was essentially a rubber band ball that was then covered with a gutta percha cover. This is what John Lowe says about this particular ball. The character of golf has been considerably changed by the introduction of India rubber into the composition of its balls. The newer balls have almost superseded those made of gutta percha which latter for nigh half a century have been regarded as the balls for golf. The reason of this change is not far to seek, nor could it have been prevented except by prompt and decisive legislation. But the legislators were neither prompt nor brave enough to carry out their own convictions, and thus an irredeemable opportunity was lost. The committee, which was supposed to be acting, did nothing. After resolving that the new balls were not suited for courses at, as at present laid out, they were incapable of offering any proposal, either as to the balls or the courses, which should restore the game to its proper position. They were too timid to risk defeat at the hands of the vulgar, who were from obvious reasons only too ready to greet the advent of the rubber balls with satisfaction. 
A simple announcement of negative character prohibiting the use of balls containing India rubber in competition would have stopped the inventive genius of our transatlantic friends and fixed the game in a scientific position. So he's talking about America right there. Mm -hmm. So what he's talking about is this new rubber band ball, the India rubber ball, which is... This is the Spalding ball. This is not the Spalding ball yet. So Spalding, even though they would become the most important ball manufacturer at the turn of the century into the 20th century, they actually invested in the old technology to begin with. So, so he's writing about an advancement made to the gutty that was shot down by the le- by legislation. No. What He's he suggesting that they should ban the rubber wound ball, which by the way was played into competition until the Pro V1. Oh, so he's suggesting that they should have banned it, but they did nothing. They they should have banned it. We should be playing the... So we these... should never be where we are right now. Exactly. Not only where we are right now, but we never should have the next hundred years of golf evolution. He doesn't... Of course, he's speaking at the time On of the ground. transition. Because the ball goes farther. Here, let me read a little bit more of him. So he goes into depth, basically suggesting that it used to be that you would have to be a really long driver to even hit it 200, but now anybody can. And he's very frustrated by the fact that um, if you were a newer player, you're already driving the ball farther than anyone that had been playing the game for like 40 years. So he was watching the game where they were making matches and they were competing all of a sudden just change underfoot. And in fact... Harry Varden, who was known for basically right at the edge of that where he was trying to rep the Varden Flyer, but it became very clear that the Varden Flyer wasn't going to be the ball of the future. And he had to switch, switch balls. Yeah. It's the absolute wild west. Cause like you, uh, you could conceivably be playing a match at your local course with somebody that was using a completely differently constructed ball that had a dramatic impact on whether or not whether or not they had even a prayer at competing against you. But like in today's world, that's just not even a, a, a possibility. I mean, you could take any ball, Jesus, you could take a range ball and put it up against somebody that has the same handicap as you playing a Pro V1 today. And I mean, would it really be that much of a difference? Would it? Would somebody? If it's a be, good range ball, it's a I mean, good range ball. If it's a good, I mean, if it's a pro range ball, they're hitting pro V ones on the range. We play the Max Fly Soft Fly, yeah. Which actually, I I do believe that you lose some yardage on that ball, but totally. But comparatively to like the top of the line balls that are out there, I mean, yeah. are you going to lose fifty yards? No. You're if not it's a regular mid handicap game, you're not going to have a. You, you, there will be differences. That is, that's what I'm saying. So the the difference between uh, a gutty and this new rubber bound ball, rubber band ball, whatever you want to call it, right, is is so the gap is so big between the two of them that it 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 created an avenue for just like an unfair element to the game. Well, listen to this. So this is his, this is where he, he goes deeper into it. So reading again from John Lowe, it was a man's job to drive a gutta percha ball 
the requisite 180 yards. So that's our 275 of the day. It's our seven iron of today. Yeah, but yeah, so 180 was a big drive. I'll read again. It was a man's job to drive a gutta percha ball, the requisite 180 yards. A lad may easily do it now. But did this loss only lie in the athletic side of the game? There would be some excuse for the players who, having been dug out of their graves by the new balls, advocated their use as good for golf. And that's funny because that's sort of like the new drivers. Because Tiger has kind of said, hey, this new technology, I'm hitting it further than I ever have. Than I ever have. At 43 years At old. At 43 years old, when he was clearly swinging much faster when he was young. Totally. Way better reflexes. It's kind of funny here because he's, it, what a great line. The players having been dug out of their graves by the new balls. This is also the idea that golf technology that improves is really great for the amateur game, you know, specifically. And I do believe that golf technology improving is, is fantastic for the amateur game. So let me read this. Sure. But the worst feature of the new balls is the distance they travel from a mishit. Not only had the old ball to be hit hard, but it had to be hit accurately or it would not go at all. An India rubber ball hit right off the nose of the club will go very nearly as far as a truly hit shot. This fact alone stamps their introduction as a detriment to the scientific play. Harry Varden came very near the truth when he said the real reason why the crowd liked the soft ball was that it gave them two chances. If they hit the ball, they made a good shot. And if they missed the ball, they made a good shot. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. That's a fair point. I mean, that's what really the new drivers and the new clubs, that's the issue with, you know, the advancement of club technology. But for that to, spots are so big. For that to hold a lot of weight, you, I, what if you look at it from a different lens? What if you look at it from the, like a higher level, right? And you think about things like course records, right? Individual scoring course records and you look at augusta for example mm -hmm. do you know what the course record for augusta is and i know that it's the 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 length of some holes has changed over the years but you know i'm guessing it's a 62 no it's not a 62 it's a 63 do you know when it was posted i don't know 1986 huh yeah by nick price and then matched by Greg Norman in 96. Wow. And it hasn't been touched since with all of the advancements to technology that we've just aforementioned. Well, they also lengthened the hole significantly. I was wondering if Tiger was the one who dropped that 63. And I guess I, I said 62 because... No, the only person that's flirted with it in modern in, mo in the modern era is Spieth. Shot a 64. Wow. But okay, so actually John Lowe touches on this. This is really interesting. Listen to this. The introduction of the more easily driven balls has upset this equation, which green committees have been regulating and balancing for the past 10 or 20 years by practically shortening the courses. Because the scores of the leading players did not at once show a sudden fall, it was suggested that it was not really a great shortening of the courses as has been stated. He goes further. 
For it must be borne in mind that a subtraction of two strokes from a base of 72 is three or four times as great as a reduction as a fall from 74 to 72. But it is in no part of our wish to prove from figures what is more surely to be seen by observation. A glance at the play on any well-known course is sufficient to show the change which has taken place in the character of the game, whether the scores be changed or not. Okay. Uh, so he's basically saying the vector of improvement is is improved by those players that are worse than the players that are better. So the players that are better improving from a score of a 72 to a 70 because of the new technology is likely, but you're more likely to see players that are shooting 80 shoot a 74. So the the field is just getting wider as a result of the technology. Exactly. In fact, he says that in the 1903 championship, someone that he probably regards as a true champion, Mr. Maxwell, who, who won, who would have been an old school player, may have been playing a gutty ball, won... But for the unexpected breakdown of his opponent at the 19th green, he, Mr. Maxwell, may might well have been beaten by a player who, on the day, seldom hit his ball down the course properly. Yeah. So he's yeah. basically saying, you know, hey, this schmo nearly won <laughs> the open. Cue the twinkle music and the starlights because an old school guy uses uh, the advantage of of wisdom and knowledge and and uh, and years and years of practice, even with inferior equipment. The these these young gun slingers still can't right. beat them. Well, he, he's refer these guys are using the same equipment. Basically, it is just the ball that they're talking sure. about, and he's like saying, but it does impact. The choice of shots, because he goes on to say the possibility of recovery with iron shots from wild drives takes away the necessity for both length and the straightness of a tee shot, formerly a most important feature in golf. I mean, that literally could be a Brandel Chambly or Golf Central morning sure. drive quote right today. That's that's one of the reasons why when we refer back and you said, oh, this doesn't really resonate. I actually read this book and I'm blown away how much it resonates, even though the context may be different. So in other words, the biggest change that happened in golf at the 19th century was the ball. And what's interesting when you then look forward to the evolution of that ball is that it remained almost entirely unchanged for a hundred years. The wound ball with a center, which, by the way, would have changed in a variety of ways. What was the composition of the core in so, these wound balls? So the composition of the core originally would have been just a center of rubber or wood or cork. They started to play around with things. In fact, Titleist was invented based on core technology. And I'm going to get into that because that was a big thing. So the original ball manufacturer that really um, became, you know, that really brought golf to the masses. Cause we talked about that before, you know, and, and he refers to it here. He actually refers to these India balls. He's like within a year or two, everyone's going to be playing rubber balls. And he was hundred percent correct. He said last year, you couldn't even buy them. Remember when I mentioned that they were going on the black market? Mm -hmm. So he references that. This book was written at that moment mm -hmm. when he's like, last year, you couldn't even buy these balls for less than gold. 
mean, you know, in that literally, he meant that quite literally. You probably had to pull out a couple gold coins to get a dozen Haskells. Sure. Spalding initially invested in the gutta percha, but very quickly they realized that this technology was kaput and they were able to come up with their own version of the wound India rubber ball. Now, whether they had to wait for the Haskell patent to finish, I haven't gotten exact details. This, in my opinion, is the most exciting time of the golf ball. So here are examples of some of the balls that were now being uh, built. And I'm going to just show you some pictures. Mm -hmm. So this... So where's a gutty? Let's start there. Yeah, the gutties actually look almost identical. They look a little bit different. So here are gutties. So the difference of a gutty okay. specifically is that they would have been painted. I think over time the technology was developed to maybe make the cover, you know, white itself. Man, these things are ugly. Instead of dimples, they're like inverted dimples. They're like knobs right. on top of the ball. And they're they're kind of... If you look at different versions... It's kind of rad they have the Tiger Ball. <laughs> Tigers should play the Tiger Ball at one point. That is that is a really cool it's looking... Really so the Tiger Ball is a yellow ball with red circles. It's imprinted with Tiger. And the are... dimpling pattern are more like little circles. There's like maybe... Okay, so there's BF Goodrich. These are Spaldings, I assume, right? That's a Goodrich, though, yeah. So these are... Pretty cool balls. This is how they were sold. So they were they were kind of sold like truffles. Well, well these have dimples. Yeah. So dimples were uh patented. Or the dimple like was patented at some point. The era of Spalding. I'm trying to think of what this reminds me of, the way that it and it's just and it's just more or less solid, right? So just to give us some context, this is what the gutty ball looks like. We're beginning to see Patterns emerge uh, because they recognize that a ball that is smooth doesn't fly well. So they started to create knobs, cross stitching. In this case, it looks almost like a like a basketball or a or a soccer ball in terms of mm -hmm. you know the patterning. You know these balls would have been able to be reshaped, so you could essentially reshape them. In, after uh, the round, in fact, that was part of the reason why it was discovered, why it, dimpling was so important, because one of the early discoveries was one caddy was collecting old balls and a Haskell was in there and the original Haskell didn't have as much dimpling or patterns on it. And so he put it into his reshaping machine for the gutty to make it more round again. So they would heat it and then reshape it again. Uh, and, you know, ended up hitting it just miles longer, you know, saw it. So that was basically, and if you were a golfer, you might have one of these at home. Like this was a make a ball maker, but certainly like it wouldn't have been, <laughs> it wouldn't have been unusual to say like, Hey, can I borrow your ball maker and kind of put my balls in the it oven? It looks like and, a, it looks like a, coffee press or something yeah you would just kind of put your old ball in there heat it up and it would reform it would reform so every now yeah. and then you would have to actually have like fresh dimples yeah i mean if you were wealthy enough you would go buy new ones but most likely the caddies that were finding balls out there that you know because essentially these were 
basically one piece balls. I mean, they were basically just a, post these photos on the podcast on the uh, like a Twitter yeah. account. Well, these photos can all be found. It's an, an amazing book called The Golf Ball Book by Udo Machat and Larry Dennis. I I strongly recommend it. It's a great coffee table book. The Bouncing Billy is the next, uh, you know, revolution, and that is where we talk about the India rubber ball. The next part was the dimple. Spalding's impact in golf was huge. And Spalding got into the golf game because they sent a sales rep out to England to investigate whether or not they could sell gloves and bats and to cricket players or otherwise get them playing baseball in the UK. And when he came back, he discovered, you know, the, the sales rep said, hey, there's this this new, you know, golf is really big out there and we should get into the golf ball game. Because if you think about it, the the golf balls, at least on the price they were then, St. Andrews, it was free to play golf. The expense was having clubs and balls and balls represented a, you know, a great sales opportunity. Just sure. how many golf balls do you go through a year? Hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. So Hundreds. I mean, but I, but at this point there, you can, you can afford to lose golf balls, but if a golf ball cost $50, I would probably go through a handful Right, year, you're gonna be right? yeah, you're gonna be I'm gonna spend 15 minutes looking for a ball that I just hit into the into the <laughs> fucking bushes. Right, right, and that's why I mentioned with the you know when I went to the history of East Moreland, there's just reams. I would meet all kinds of old timers with just thousands of golf balls in their garage. All right, taking a a quick read here from the golf ball book. Spalding's first wound ball was the Wizard, also carrying the popular bramble pattern and manufactured from gutta perch and all other resilient materials from a recipe known only to ourselves. Spalding had bought a Massachusetts rubber company that had found balata, a gum from the belly tree in a nearby Latin America, to be softer and more elastic than gutta percha, and balata was one of the other materials. Soon, balata would su totally supersede the gutty cover. So that was Spalding's probably biggest impact to the game is they brought Balata to the scene. As I mentioned, tour players in the 80s were still playing Balata-covered wound rubber balls. So if we look at that in terms of a time period, that's over 80 years of basically playing a ball with the very same identical technology. Now, there were little bits of um, technology advances within the ball, but the ultimate technology itself really remained exactly the same. These are some examples of some of those early Spalding balls. Spalding came out with the Spalding dot, which is really, if I were to make a comparison, the Spalding dot is very much like the Bridgestone, you know, B, BXS, you know, RX and RXS, the Spalding dot was designed to be like, there are four balls for four different types of players. And that was really their, the Spalding dot was their 
primary ball that was, you know, played in the, the, you know, in the, in the teens and the twenties, this was their, this was their big ball. Chandler Egan. He was a Spalding player. So Spalding balls were becoming the number one ball on tour, or at that time, the amateur tour. And one of our heroes here in Portland, Oregon, Chandler Egan, he won both the USAM and the NCAA with a Spalding wound ball, Spalding um, dot. Do these things have any worth today? If you go to the antique golf show, you can see these old balls. So they... I mean, how old is this dot? How old is the Spalding dot? What are we talking about? What year? The Spalding dot is 1906 is when we're talking about. 1904, it's, that, it's, 1906. it's 110 years old. 110 years old. If you get an unopened box of like Spalding dots, I bet they have some value. Maybe so 100 bucks. But what's here's... the oldest ball that we can get our paws on that we could go out and play a match play around against each other with. What's the oldest balls that we could find that don't resemble new modern construction? I I don't really know. I mean, I've I've got there's like no hope we can find a gutty ball and go play around with it, right? But a Spalding dot or something Well, we could find a gutty ball. I mean, I could bring in the guys from the Northwest Hickory Sticks and they they probably got gutty balls they could they've got old balls the challenge with these balls from back then is if we were to play them with modern equipment they'd smash so when you play hickory stick break yeah when you when yeah they would break first of all because they're old and brittle but secondly because the equipment we have Uh is is often really just too powerful for the balls themselves even the irons yeah so they have a rule at the northwest hickory sticks because they give you they you they'll have tournaments and you can get hickory clubs and I I was gonna bring one in I was we're talking about balls not clubs today uh-huh. um, the uh, the requirement that they have is that you have to use a soft ball so the max fly soft fly would be allowed to play in hickory tournament because it has to have a compression that's much softer sure. than a modern ball Less to play clicky, more soft. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it could damage, cause it could ultimately, what it would damage is the woods. So the reason why they make it would you dent them, it would right? dent the woods. Yeah. Exactly. The balls are too hard. Don't they have a metal faceplate on most of those old persimmons? No, no. Was that like a, a, a modern? No, thing? they would have ceramic safe face plates though. Yeah. I should bring in an old persimmon so you can take a look at it. We're going to yeah. dig into the golf golf. Yeah, we'll clubs. get there. But my, I'm just sitting here on thinking, looking at these photos and these these relics of golf balls, and I'm just like, just like, what would it be like to take one out for a spin? You know. So the revolution in golf balls, which was led by American manufacturing companies specifically the rubber manufacturing companies that would have also been growing um, rapidly with the development of tires for automobiles. So one of the reasons why many of the original um, golf balls are made by American tire companies is because they were the ones that were in, you know, rubber was like the plastic of its era. This was really maybe the very beginnings of plastic here in the 1920s. With the evolution of the golf ball, 
the came the evolution of the American pro golfer. So this is the era of the time when the Americans began what would become essentially their domination of professional golf on both sides of the pond. It wasn't set. It was. It began with really Walter Hagen, uh, and it would uh, continue to go from there with guys like Hogan, you know, and you know Byron Nelson and Sam Snead and the rest. And they would have all been playing uh, these wound balls. It was in 1913. Spalding, you know, started publishing a catalog dedicated only to golf. As I understood. Spalding's revenue, uh, their revenue related to golf quickly eclipsed what they were making in baseball. I mean, in terms of what made the Spalding Athletic Company as big as it is today Mm. was in large part golf equipment and specifically golf balls. But then they started to get into the game of like drivers. Well, the economics of it makes a lot of sense because when you are selling baseballs to baseball players the average baseball player doesn't buy baseballs they're they're purchased by the team they're used for pitchers i mean as a hitter and an outfielder i wouldn't have a bag of baseballs right and how many mitts do you buy i I buy two or three in in the lifetime of my you know your life yeah like how many how many mitts did you have like when you were in when you were playing in college played i had one glove yeah. yeah, I dropped a couple hundred bucks on it, but I, I still have it. Yeah. I mean, that, it, was, that was 10 years ago. Right. So, I mean, um, it's not a very profitable venture, but the thing is with golf balls is that every player is going to have many in their bag and throughout the course of a round is going to lose, you know, depending on the golfer, a few to a dozen. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, most golfers, like we said, not losing a ball is unusual for most golfers. I don't think I've ever played a full round without losing a ball. I think that actually Maybe a couple. When I watch amateurs play, nerves that kick in when they realize they start counting how many balls they have in the bag. Yeah. And they start actually kind of like, oh, I might run out of golf balls. Like, you know, they start the round with like nine and sure. all of a sudden they realize on like the fourteenth hole that they've got one left but this is probably a sentiment that golfers throughout history have always identified with oh totally and i think they would have looked with more vigor Mm -hmm. for golf balls i think in that modern era we don't look for them as often although and but pace of play rules that refer that like align with the value of a golf ball right like you're not supposed to look for a ball for more than a few minutes yep so one of the oldest balls still being made. So as I understand it, um, the Spalding ball is no longer being made. It was made for a very, very long time. I think it ended somewhere in the 80s or 90s. So I would have to verify that, but I don't think you could go into like a Golf Galaxy or a Dick's and find a Spalding ball. But what can you find? Just about, uh, you can find a Titleist ball. Well, what about the other ball that we like so much? The Crayola Softies. <laughs> the Softies, the Max Flies? Guess how old the Max Fly is? Uh, did it go through a name change, probably? Um, it has not had the a name brand, change. Uh, well, the Max... Actually, now that I think about it, it was it's it's probably been since the 80s or 90s. Yeah? Even further? 
1919. Maxfly? The Maxfly has been in production since 1919. It was originally made by Dunlop, and it was a lattice design. So it was a revolutionary ball at the time. This ball's 100 years old. The ball is 100 years old. The ball, the brand is a hundred years old. Let's brand, put it that way. The brand's a hundred, and the brand by is, as I understand it, owned by Golf Galaxy now. So I think yeah, it's they, their house brand. Yeah. They kept it going, which is actually super cool that a brand that has such you know, a long history. They do a real terrible job of like, like um, marketing it as such. Like, hey, did you know that this is the oldest living brand on the shelf? They sh- like, they should do that because once I knew that, which is by the way. In part, when you introduced the ball to me, I, I, you know, I, I laughed it off. I'm not going to play a Max Fly, and then I hit that great shot, and then I was doing the research, and I was like, oh, the Max Fly is like old school. Like this it's ball like one is one of the original gangsters. This is literally the only. This, so the Max Fly is the oldest branded ball that's been in constant production for over a hundred years. That is the Max Fly ball. Do yeah. you know? Um... The thing about Spalding that you've mentioned here that doesn't surprise me, which I've learned recently through some like entrepreneurial uh, um, education series, is that a family-owned business, on average, lasts only three generations. So, so for a family-run and owned business like the Spaldings were, to exist beyond half of a century is extreme, extremely and increasingly rare. Well, let's let's use that as a segue to talk about the next two big evolutions in the ball, uh, which involves another closely held company. So the next evolution of the golf ball involved how they were weaving the rubber bands. This became really important. In fact, a golf ball company by the name of Titleist would later say that the way you weave these rubber bands and the type of materials you're using. So this would be now going into the nineties, the, you know, the very end of the wound ball era where they would using different types of layers and different weaves and the wound, the way it's wound one of the head production of Titleist in the nineties said, it's like the engine of the ball. So you could create a different flight pattern. One of the things that also impacted the flight were the dimple patterns. So dimples began to become a selling point of these golf balls. And they started to sell golf balls that were um, of different size. So this became a thing in the 20s. They were selling balls that were called sinkers. So they were heavier and they were designed to be like played low to the ground they were others that were called floaters that were lighter and they were designed to have like a a game and this really is the difference between the american game and the lynx game right i mean there's i assume that there's usga regulations today that that um stipulate that the weight of a ball falls within so there's very specific rules about it and in fact a ball can only be a conforming USGA ball if it's actually been submitted to the USGA. So if you go to their website now, you can look to see what ball is actually conforming. There's over a thousand on this list. At this time, the rules were not so clear. Balls were not required to be a specific weight. 
They were not required to be a specific size. And in 1920, they got into a huge fight about it. The RNA started making rules about the weight and size of balls. The next big entrance into the golf ball market was the Titleist. And Titleist was founded in New Bedford. How far away is that from where you grew up? Real close. Um, New Bedford, Jesus, New Bedford, North Shore, Boston. I think it's near like Lowell. So it's like 30 minutes away from where I grew up. Yeah. So they still have operations in, in the Cape. They build, they, they manufacture a lot of balls in Cape. They, they still em- make Titleists there they in employ, Massachusetts. They employ like a whole city. Yeah. And so at the time they made rubber caps, bathing caps, you know, syringes, all kinds of things made of rubber. And the founder of the company was an avid golfer. His name was Phil Young. He was a graduate of MIT. And he was convinced that the golf balls that he was playing didn't roll true. Who was this? Phil Young. So he is a... MIT graduate, um, sports-minded person, and he played golf balls, and they and he would say the center isn't round, like it like there's something wrong with this golf ball. Oh, like it's rolling lopsided. The weighting is distributed yeah. funny. Yeah, I hit it and it keeps on just it's acting funny in the air. So what he did is he brought them back to there because they were in the medical technology world. He found another friend by the name of Fred William Bomber and said, let's x-ray this ball. So they took a <laughs> bunch of like Max Flies and Spaldings sure. and they put them under an x-ray and they were able to determine like, yeah, the center of the ball isn't in the center. Yeah. Or this center is like a little bit smaller than that center. And this is around what year? And this was in the 30s. So 1931, this is beginning. So like x-ray technology would have been like a modern... Yeah, they went to a guy named Dr. Harold Edergen of MIT. So they're kind of working with MIT. This is really... Titleist, I guess, would be the beginning of the real space race in golf technology, where prior it was sort of inventive sort of oh this would be a good idea let's try this even the round rubber ball is a little bit scientific but it's a little bit more like you know golf balls just any little help this is basically where they're deciding let's take this particular technology and just really improve it using scientific method and using things outside of golf like x-ray machines and stroboscopic cameras and they basically started to use a lot of technology to really understand what the ball was about. The next thing that they did is then they had another huge advancement, and that was the liquid core center. So they came out with a golf ball that instead of having a it was rubber like in a core sack? center, yeah. Okay. Yeah, a liquid core center. Yeah. Because it could handle the compression. At high speeds better. They realized from a physics standpoint that having a solid core was not necessarily the best thing. And so they they went into making a but liquid wouldn't it lose core. some of its like elasticity? I mean, yeah, I, I understand the concept of being able to absorb the compression. But what you want is like that 
that elasticity that not only does it absorb, but it fires back, right? That creates the velocity. Yeah, I don't have enough information about the physics of it, but mm -hmm. essentially there is an element to that. And the types of then became a space race of what do we put inside this core? Sure. So all of a sudden it was a liquid filled core, which was so know, many times in history that we've made uh, advances in different technologies and thought that we've stumbled upon like the thing and then looked back and been like, that was a stupid idea. Yeah. Well, I, these, the liquid core was not a stupid idea. It was a great idea, but then they started putting in other things inside the ball that was stupid. So they put um, honey, called the honey boy. <laughs> Probably it was somebody that, you know, had a honey farm around. They decided maybe the viscosity of honey was a better. Sure. And of course it was great marketing. I think. Put jello in there. Yeah. I think Chocolate Walter Hagen <laughs> repped like the honey boy, you know, it was definitely would have worked well from a, a marketing magazine standpoint, you totally. know, a, a, a woman yeah. buying her golf, you know, deciding what dozen balls to buy for yeah for her pine, husband on santa let's put pine sap in there yeah exactly uh then they went into um they actually did an air uh one so in other words it was like just a hollow like core. a hollow core ball yeah. that With was actually air that was actually known to explode so I, that became that imagine, yeah. that that actually went off the market after the golf ball would explode under high speeds um eventually what the coolest one is a company put radium in the ball what? Yeah. They literally decided with the beginning of the nuclear age, let's put radium in the ball. That definitely was a marketer. That was like, we need something. Explosive. A bit, like, yeah, that just that just speaks to the energy that's created. <laughs> How about this new radium? It's let's like this. Take some nuclear technology yeah. <laughs> and inject it in our golf balls. And... <laughs> I mean, you know some dudes bought it for five more yards. So they... <laughs> I have this photo um, that I was going to show you. Um, uh, what was the date? 2015. December 5th, 2015. I was playing at Batam Hills Golf Course in Indonesia. I had a fresh Titleist box, fresh, fresh, uh, fresh case of Titleist NXTs. And this happened when I took a freshie out and uh, hit a, played a, played an approach shot from the fairway. You did that with a golf club. You split a ball in half. Split with a, a ball in half. It, it just broke, like almost like it had a seam or something, and it just broke right down the middle. Wow. Well, that would Fresh be. Ball. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 actually would have been. By the way, that ball that you're showing, which is a modern Pro V1. No, it's not. This was an NXT. It's only two layers. Well, it looks. It's similar to a modern Pro V1 yeah, in yeah. that it's. I mean, it's different. Got a different cover, and it's got different. You know, composite on the inside. But let's talk about that real quick, because even though the wound ball with the Bellotta cover remained the number one ball on tour, whether it was you know, a Spalding or a Max Fly or a Titleist, those balls still remain the number one balls on tour in terms of performance and feel, it, well into the 90s in the Pro V1. Prior to the Pro V1, however, the ball went back to its gutty roots, and that's where it was the two- or three-piece ball, a composite core-filled ball. Do you know what ball was that name so spalding developed it this was the new revolution in golf it happened in the 60s 
that composite rubber cord ball with a with with a outer layer. Yeah, an out, outer layer. So this and this was bringing golf again to the masses. So this is reducing the cost and making them go farther because these balls. When I was growing up, the difference between a, ra- a wound ball and a and a two piece ball or a composite ball was that the wound the composite balls definitely went farther than the wound ball. They didn't perform as well. I've got a name in my in my mind, but at the risk of sounding stupid, you might want to edit this out. Is it a balada ball? No, no, no. The balada balls are the cover. A balada ball is a natural rubber resin that's used as the cover for a wound ball like, you know, Titleist, you know, their tour balls or the okay. Titleist balada tours. Um a guy working at DuPont started to experiment with different types of rubbers. And eventually, um, they wanted to try to make a single piece ball, basically like that would make it, you know, work well. The economics of the ball was like cutting the entire price by half. Yeah. So this was really... If it was a single structure instead of multiple layers, then it would be extremely easy to reproduce and efficient... It was essentially like taking the wound ball and going back to the gutty, really, is what it is. It's just instead of using gutty material, you're using newer composite rubbers. The number one ball that made it happen in a big way was the Spalding Top Flight. So the Spalding Top Flight really was the full-on marketing arm of Spalding to bring a new ball to the market. And Top Flight, even when I started playing golf in the 80s, was considered a premium brand relative for the mid to high handicappers, the regular everyday golfer. A Top Flight XL, for example, was considered a good ball. Mm-hmm. That was that was a ball that you would put into play. The, on the Titleist side, Pinnacle was their version of that ball. And so there was a real distingui- distinguishing between the wound balls and these new uh, solid balls and that's what they were often called well, solid balls because they've both um gone on to become their own brands balding developed the top flight right which is still exists as its own brand so spalding doesn't make spalding balls anymore they make top flights and pinnacle is like a very typical range ball now yeah and i think pinnacle was developed by titleist so pinnacle was the brand that was to distinguish it from a Titleist. So Titleist did not have, Oh, right. Okay. They didn't have like the NXT. They, they, they would have made only, they would have made pinnacles or Titleist. If it's a Titleist, it's a wound ball. Mm -hmm. If it's a pinnacle, it's for the, the schmoes. Sure. You know, and then the, the next part that really comes in and we could go into it is, you know, the dimple race. Today's episode is inspired by our favorite winter ball. The MaxFly Softfly, delivering ultra-low compression for clutch eagles in lime green. Found at your local golf galaxy, we love hashtag Crayola Softies. 